0: morning. Welcome to this beautiful Palm Sunday of a service of worship at the Houghton Wesleyan Church. Let's stand together for our call to worship and read responsively. As the time came for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. As he went along, People spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut up branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds that went ahead of him And those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Please pray with me. Father God, as we remember today both the amazing entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, coming into his own as Messiah, And yet also, the incredible twist uh, in the way that it was to unfold completely unexpectedly. We are overwhelmed and humbled by your sovereignty. Father, we have many things in our lives that operate this way. And we pray that today, as we consider this story again, that we will understand your sovereignty, understand the amazing way in which Jesus was to be Messiah for us in a way that we did not expect, and let it draw us closer to reliance on you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Before you're seated, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. great joy to welcome you on this Palm Sunday morning. We're glad that you are here in uh, this gathering of worship. There's just uh, one part of the bulletin that I want to highlight among the many announcements are there. If you look on the back page, there's a list of Holy Week activities. And uh, just notice that uh, Wednesday night, we do not have any any activities here at the church. But Thursday night, we have a Monday Thursday service at 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary. Uh, if you haven't been a part of that service before, it's... Uh, Commemorates the, the last night of Jesus' life before the cross and a lot of sensory elements to that service. We'd love to have you uh, be a part of that gathering. Friday, we are uh, doing what we did last year of hosting a journey to the cross in the community room. It will be start at 10 in the morning, end at 6 in the evening. You can feel free to come and go at any time and stay as long or as little as you would like. We'll have different destinations there. Uh, again, some interactive uh, parts of that that uh, just help us experience more of the passion of Christ. And uh, we would love to have you come and be a part of that as well anytime on Friday between 10 and 6. And then next Sunday is Easter, and we will begin with a 745 service. We have some people who are being baptized at that early gathering. Breakfast at the college at 830, and then our one worship service at 10 o'clock next week. So just please note that time change for next Sunday for Easter a 10 o'clock worship service. I invite you to uh, take your bulletins and join me in the prayer of confession that is printed there. Let us pray together. Our great God and Savior, as we look to the cross, we are reminded that the victory is yours. Sins forgiven, death conquered, your people redeemed, And your kingdom coming. Though we affirm this truth, we have grown weary in its pursuit. And in the face of opposition, we confess that our response is often not yours, but the world's. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for the times when we have spent more energy fighting to prove we are right instead of doing what you ask of us. Forgive us for the words we speak out of revenge or judgment instead of speaking the truth in love. Forgive us for being what we see in the world instead of living as who we are in you. In our weakness, lead us to the cross and in the victory of your resurrection. Amen.
0: Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, verses 9 through 13. This can be found on page 202 in your pew Bible. Deuteronomy 31, verses 9 to 13. So Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the Israel to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, at the end of every 7 years, in the year for canceling debts, during the feast of tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, men women and children, and the aliens living in your towns, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children, who do not know this law, must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward to receive our tithes and offerings, let us stand together and sing the doxology and remain standing for prayer. Father, all these resources, like the cattle on a thousand hills, are yours. Thank you for the privilege that you give us to participate in your work of using them to bless and to further your kingdom. Make us joyful in it, in Jesus' name.
1: Christ who goes to the cross invites us to, to come to him with the burdens, the concerns, the words of gratitude as we pray together. If you would like to offer your prayers at the altar rail, I invite you to join me. Eternal God, we come to you now with mixed emotions and certainly with need to confess our sins. We hear the sufferings of Jesus and yet so often we run from any hardship. We set high expectations for others and then resist expectations for ourselves. We clamor for attention to our needs and far too often are unfeeling about the needs of others. We are quick to speak and we tend to be slow to listen. We often judge on outward appearances before taking the time to discover the character within one another. So we ask you to be patient with us to hear our prayers of forgiveness. And we ask for your grace. Father, we come today with burdens not only for ourselves, but for others. We know there are great needs in our world and there are great needs among us. People in need of healing, comfort, restoration, People who are in need of spiritual renewal. People in our world who lack for the very necessities of life. In this moment of silence, hear our prayers. Father, thank you for hearing us. Thank you for answering in the way that you know is best. Thank you for your compassion on all of our needs, for your healing power, for your comforting grace, for the miraculous work of your Spirit among us and throughout this world. Father, we come today in gratitude for who you are and for what you've done and for all that you have promised to do. Thank you for your love to each of us and your love to this world that you have created. We offer all of our prayers to the name and power of Jesus Christ For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
0: Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John. Chapter 19, verses 38 to 42, which can be found in, at page uh, 1074 in your pew Bible. In the, uh, this is John chapter 19, 38 through 42. In the tradition of the historic church, let us stand for the reading of the gospel. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen, This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Father, how can we express truly our gratitude for what you've done for us in Christ? Help us to hear you speaking into our lives through your word as we continue in worship. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. One of the last things that Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven was that they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Again and again, God says to his followers, Jesus says to his followers, go into the world and and tell others about me. You are my presence in the world. It's through you that people are going to know what it means to know me. And the question is, how do we do that? What does it look like to go into the world and make disciples? What does it look like to be an influence in the world for Christ and for his kingdom? There are a whole gamut of opinions about what that means and what that looks like. And probably with as many people as we are here this morning, there are maybe that many different opinions about it that question was running through my mind about what it means to influence the world for the kingdom as I read once again this passage from John's Gospel that we read just a few moments ago about the the burial of Jesus. The Romans would typically leave crucified people on the cross for as long as it took the animals to finish them off. And so it is a bit surprising that Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate and asks for Jesus' body so he can give him a decent burial. We don't know a lot about Joseph. We, when we read the scriptures and some things that we get from history, it's pretty clear that Joseph is wealthy. He has a, a fairly high degree of influence, just based on the fact that Pilate would have a conversation with him, the governor of this whole area for Rome, and would actually do what he wants says something to the clout that Joseph has he is a part of the Sanhedrin the, the Jewish ruling body in first century palestine so he has some religious clout as well and and he seems to be someone who is a seeker of god john actually tells us that he is a disciple of jesus but john also says that he is a disciple of jesus in secret and you wonder, why, why is he a secret disciple of Jesus? Why not be a, an open disciple just like the others? And John tells us it's because he's afraid of the Jews. And that seems to be a, a pattern through the Gospels, and particularly in the Gospel of John, that people are afraid of the Jews. And by the Jews, it doesn't mean the whole race of people, but it's the Jewish leaders. That's what he's talking about. And some translations even will translate it that way. He's talking about the people who rule the religious institution in first century Palestine. The high priests, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. The people who have the religious power. People are afraid of them. Goes back to John chapter 7. Jesus is teaching and People, it says the people were whispering about Jesus. I think he might be onto something. Maybe he's good after all. Others, nah, I don't think so. And and John makes it very clear. He says they were whispering about him, but no one would speak publicly about Jesus for fear of the Jews. Jump ahead, to chapter nine. Jesus heals a man born blind. He does it on the Sabbath, so that throws everybody in the religious institution into uh, into a tizzy. You don't do that on the Sabbath, as we talked last week. The Sabbath's for worshiping God, not for helping people. And so he, they're upset. They interview the guy, and he doesn't give them the answers they want. So they get his parents, and they, they interrogate his parents. And their response is hey, ask him. He's old enough. And John says the reason they answered that is because they were afraid of the Jews. You move ahead to chapter 12. Now it's, it's the last week of Jesus' life. It's in the beginning of 12 is, is the uh, Palm Sunday. And, and Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's teaching and, and he's sharing about his, the kingdom. And you, again, you get this mixed response. And actually some of the leaders, it says, of the relig- some of the religious leaders are actually following Jesus. But no one wants to say anything publicly for fear of the Jews. There is this spirit of intimidation. Spirit of power and control that seems to permeate the religious landscape of first century Palestine. And my question as I read that, again here with with, uh, Joseph, is that God's intent? Is that what it means to be an influence in the world for the kingdom? Is the best strategy for doing that Fear, intimidation, power, control. Now, there is a difference between fearing other people and fearing God. The scriptures tell us that we ought to fear God. You go back into the Old Testament and in in the book of Exodus, chapter 18, Moses is gathering together leaders uh, in the nation of Israel who are going to help him rule. And it's... God says, choose men who fear the Lord, who have a respect for God, who follow God. You jump ahead to the book of Leviticus. And throughout the book of Leviticus, God equates fearing him and caring about injustice, treating the poor with respect and kindness and compassion and, and being a, an advocate for them. Those are the people who fear God, and the people who don't fear God don't care a thing about them. And then in Deuteronomy 31, the passage we just read, Moses, in his last speech to Israel, says, here's what you need to teach your children. Fear the Lord your God. When you get into the land of Canaan and you inherit that land, you teach them to fear the Lord your God. The Psalms talk often about fearing God. Psalm thirty-three eighteen says, The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those who place their hope in Him. There is a different sense to that kind of fear about God. It is not intimidation. It's not putting the screws to us. It's not control. Rather, it's worship. It is connecting ourselves to Him. It is following Him. It's choosing Him as opposed to rejecting Him. And that is completely different than the the atmosphere that permeates first-century Palestine the religious landscape. The fear of the Jews is not respect, it's intimidation. And the question that the church is continually wrestling with is, is how do we influence the world? Do Is the best way to influence the world fear? Is it intimidation? It seems to work with them because no one wants to speak up about Jesus. They're getting what they want, and ultimately they put Jesus on the cross. So the fear must be working. The hard part for us is that that's how the rest of the world operates. That's how you do things in our culture. You intimidate people. You use fear. Just think back to the to the last political landscape, political election. You can probably think of a whole lot more beyond that, but just take the last one. I don't know about you, but for me, most of the political ads that I saw were not, I'm the candidate running, here's what I'll do, but rather... This is my opponent, and if you follow him, your life will cease to exist as you know it now. Right? I mean, they play on everyone's fears. If you vote for this candidate, all of your worst nightmares are going to come true. Everything that you've worked for is going to be gone. Everything that you believe is rightfully yours is is lost. And they use fear to intimidate people to get votes. And that's how our world operates. Because quite frankly, it does work or the the politicians wouldn't use it. We are people who are easily intimidated and easily give in to fear mongering and it works. And throughout the history of the church, we have a up and down reputation of using fear as a motivation, as a means of influence. Quite frankly, we don't have a real good reputation sometimes. When you look back through the history of God's people, you see over and over again the church trying to use fear and intimidation and force to influence society. And it always backfires. But we keep trying it. Not too long ago, I was reading about one of the reformers who uh, was pastor of a town uh, in a a city, was uh, the leading churchman of the city was a you know theologian and, and basically was the religious leader of that whole community. And and of course in that context he's fighting the Reformation. So he's fighting against the abuses of the Catholic Church as he saw them and you know going through this this whole battle of the, the Protestant Reformation unfolding. And and he was so intent that his way was right and true. And he, he was right. And, and he wa- what he was saying was true. And, and, and his, his doctrine was was right on. It was biblical. But he was so intent on that and wanted to make sure people got it and didn't, didn't fall prey to other kinds of teaching that he created this system, kind of a police state of spies all throughout the town. And they would report back to him the things that people were doing. And people would be fined and punished for the things that he thought were wrong. So dancing, drinking, um, saying that uh, there was no hell or or no devil. You could be fined and punished for those things. You would be fined and punished for saying the Pope was a good man. You could be fined and punished for criticizing his sermons. I didn't know you could do that. This is a new revelation to me. So just watch what you say, you know. And, and it created this, this police state of fear in this community. And he never got to the end that he wanted. Yeah, on the outside, people were saying, sure, we agree with you. But transformation wasn't really taking place. Because I am convinced genuine transformation takes place not through fear and intimidation, but through love. Love is what brings about genuine transformation. That's the way God chooses to bring about transformation. The most famous passage of Scripture, even people who aren't that well-versed in Scripture might know this. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's love that motivates God. It, it's an act of love that God uses for the most profound means of influencing the world for His kingdom. We, you know, the, the problem with fear is that someone else, something else, has always has the potential to make us more afraid, more intimidated, more controlled. So someone says, this is what you need to believe, and if you don't, there are consequences to that. And, I, you know, and they put fear into us. And so we say, okay, I'll believe that. And then not too long later, someone else comes along, and they put more pressure on us, and so we change our mind and do what they want. And then someone else has more pressure on us, and we, we get more afraid, so we do what they want. And that's the, there's no end to how far fear might take us. The next fear could always move us to something different. But love doesn't do that love is just love and God never bullies anyone into the kingdom he woos us into the kingdom he calls us he comes to us he invites us but he never bullies us and if God's strategy is not to bully us why would we think it should be ours? So how do we create this atmosphere of love instead of an atmosphere of fear as as a means of influencing the world as the church? I think for one thing, we have to continually acknowledge that we are all sinners in need of God's grace every day. You know, one of the reasons we, we use fear is that we become arrogant about who we are and what we believe, that we're perfect. We bully people because we believe we're right and they're wrong and there is no middle ground. Acknowledging that we are sinners constantly in need of God's grace shatters our arrogance. Because in that statement of acknowledgement... We are saying, it's not about me, it's about God. Anything good that's happened in my life is because God has done it. Anything good that will happen in my life is because God will do it. In myself, I couldn't accomplish anything. I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. All of us are. We are all broken people. We keep trying, thinking that we can put ourselves back together. We cannot. Only Christ can put us back together. And if only Christ can put us together, then it's all about Christ. And so instead of, instead of assuming that I'm perfect and you're not, so I'll tell you what to do. Instead of believing that we have all the answers and if you just listen to me, everything would be perfect. We come together in a spirit of humility. Because it's about Christ. I think it also means that we commit ourselves, simply commit ourselves to each other. That we are the body of Christ with all of our differences and all of our different ways of seeing things and doing things. And that's okay. There are some core things that we believe as Christians and they are essential. And, and we would go to the death for those things. But there are also a lot of peripheral things that we believe and, and I that are are not life and death issues. They're opinions. their interpretations. They're not unimportant. They're just not core essential truths. And I find that far too often, we're willing to go to the death for the peripheral things more than we are the core things. And as the body of Christ, we're going to see things differently. We're going to have different perspectives. We're going to interpret things differently. And instead of seeing that as a negative, we see it as a positive. God has done something and taught me something about my experiences that maybe he wants to use me to say something to you. But the exact opposite is also true. God is at work in your life. And there are things that God has done for you that I need to hear that will help me grow, help me become more the person that God created me to be. But if it's all about me, I never hear that. It's all fighting for I'm right, you're wrong, all of that gets lost, and instead of growing more and more like Christ, we become less like Christ. The most holy people we know are people who are humble, people who are dependent on God. They're not people who are arrogant, who have all the answers, who figured everything out, but are willing to let God teach them through any number of means. That's what God is looking for as the church. And the only way that we will be a spirit of love and influence in the world is if we, are, we have that spirit as the body of Christ. Because what's in here seeps out. Jesus says, don't know you're my disciples if you love each other. And loving each other means that we can have frank dialogue, we can disagree, we can have conversations, we can go through all of those things. And and that's good, and we learn from that, and we grow from that. But ultimately, it's in the spirit of of not, how can I convince you to think the way I think? But rather, I wonder what God wants to teach me through you. Through what He's revealed in your life. I wonder what God wants to say to me that I'd never seen before through you. And ultimately, all of this is back to the cross. Love is, love is a risk. We all know, if you if you've put your heart out there and you've really loved someone with your being, you have been hurt. It, it's just the way it is. We've all had it happen to us. The only people who who don't seem to get hurt are the people who just don't love. And they're hurt other ways. But if you genuinely love, the risk to be hurt is high. And the risk to lose is high. And the risk for people to reject what you think is important is high. But that's still the way of God It's the way of the cross. There is no more greater risk in the world than what God does through Christ on the cross. When Christ is hanging on the cross and the people who put him there are are standing looking up at him, do you think they're intimidated? Not at all. That's why they taunt him and abuse him. They believe they've won. And if you just took a snapshot of that moment, you'd have to say, it sure looks like they won and it looks like Jesus lost. Love really didn't get the job done. But just a couple days later, the whole picture changes. And what looked like losing is winning, and what looked like winning is losing. Because ultimately, the love of God in Christ is always victorious. And yes, it's risky. I mean, God loves us. He doesn't demand of us. He doesn't put the screws to us. He loves us and love can be rejected. We all know that. But love is also the means to become the people God created us to be and the church that God created us to be. We risk love Because God risks love. And I don't think we realize how radical and revolutionary God's strategy for influencing the world truly is. It really comes down to trust. What strategy are we going to trust? Are we going to trust the strategy of fear and intimidation, Or are we going to trust God in Christ through the Holy Spirit to do what we can't do in ourselves? To be an influence in the world of His grace and His mercy and His love that looks like a cross. And that's why we come to this table today. At this table, we have the symbols of the risk of God. The risk that God takes to love us and the whole world. And the call on, our, on us as a people to be his loving presence, influence, in a world that desperately needs to know his love. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you know that this is difficult for us. We find it hard so often to take the risk of love, to be a people who trust you. Give us grace to trust you a bit more. To embrace your strategy for influencing the world. Father, we pray your blessing upon the bread and the cup. We pray that as your Holy Spirit comes upon these elements and comes upon us. As we eat and drink, that this would be food for our souls. And that we would, in taking the bread and in drinking the cup, renew our commitment to your strategy, to your plan, to be your people who bring a presence of love to your world. We pray this, Father, through Jesus Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And On the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This morning, we're going to receive communion by intinction. This means to dip in. As you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. And you may return to your seat by the outside aisle. If you'd like to stay and pray, at the altar rail it's always open. I'd like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. It might be the first time that you've ever worshipped here, but if you come today with your heart open to God and desire for God's grace and mercy in your life and desire to live in fellowship with Him and, and with others and come and Receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father.
2: Thee I am, I am having hate pretended by far. Who was the guilty Who brought this upon thee? Alas my treason Jesus has cheese. Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay Thee, I do adore Thee.